Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you, as ever, by Vanishing Inc. Now, today's a bit of a special one, because guess what? We're ten years old. That's right. We have been in business ten years. So to celebrate, there are several special things happening. First of all, on the website, there's a free download bundle with ten tricks over the last ten years of us being in business. Everybody can get this for free. And if that's not enough, we've got 10% off everything on the entire site. Yes, that's right. 10% off everything. Now, the third special thing is this week's episode. It's a bit different because we've got Joshua interviewing Andy and Andy interviewing Joshua. Now, the first one was fine. That was recorded in a basement in New York. The second one was recorded in the middle of a rainforest. So I have done what I can to clean up the audio. It's not perfect, but it's a fun show. We hope you enjoy it. After you've listened, pop along to vanishinginkmagic.com, get your free download bundle and enjoy 10% off everything. All righty, on with the show. Hello, Vanishing podcast listeners. I'm Andy Gladwin, and I am in a basement in New York uh, alongside a guy that I like to call my best friend in the whole world. His name is Joshua J. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. This is my podcast on Vanishing Inc., uh, but I'm glad to have you as my first guest. And uh, we just witnessed an amazing show called Six Impossible Things. Just give us like the the 20 second elevator pitch of what the show is. So it's an immersive magic show. It's all about taking material and putting it in the environment that suits it best. So we start with a magic trick in the dark. You see magic on the ground. You see magic standing, seated, surrounded. You walk through a prop to get to something. You see magic one-on-one. It's it's about putting magic in new environments. And it's an absolute blast to do this show. It's also not just the perfect environment for the magic, but I think the perfect environment for you. Of all the places I've seen you perform, it's where you've kind of really, really shine. Um, I kind of want to know what the process is for developing material and making it fit in that kind of environment. Boy, I mean, I wish I knew. It, it has not been easy. It's a challenging show to perform. I think that for a lot of people, it's a challenging show to digest. Um, it's not for everyone. I had wanted to do something very, very small. There's just 20 guests per night uh, for a long time. And uh, it was, it, I mean, we did it in an escape room. And in some ways that feels like the perfect place to do it. Um, it's called a storytelling space now, but it's just several rooms that are just decorated entirely differently. One we did in total graffiti, one is like a Bates Motel looking place, another one is a 1940s kitchen. And the idea is to, to challenge me, to challenge myself to come up with material that fits in those rooms. And I had help from Luke Germay, who helped write the show and direct it, uh, the other brothers, yourself, lots and lots of people. It was actually Harrison Greenbaum who suggested an escape room space for this idea that I had. The show is quite different now. I saw it when it first opened, and now, in a few small but important ways, it's quite different. Why do you continue to evolve a show? Why are you not happy with the first version? You know, I, I don't know what it is about me. I know that I annoy my whole staff there because I never stop. I mean, if... If somebody didn't tap me on the shoulder every single night and go, Josh, it's we've been here seven hours, you gotta 
you got to call it a day. We'll work on this again tomorrow. I mean, as soon as the second show is over, I can't wait to scurry out all the guests who are there to hang out and say hello because I want to go, okay, I have a new idea for this. What if the spotlight comes in a little bit later and I say this instead of this? Or can we try this from this angle? Or what if the guests were seated and I was standing instead of the other way around? I'm constantly trying these things out and I'm constantly messing with the chemistry. You know, I think of it as like this dashboard. You know, when you look into the the pilot's sort of console on a mm-hmm. plane and there's so many knobs and levers and things you can turn and that's how I feel about this show is just there's just so much to do and tweak and play because it isn't like a comedy club show or an illusion show or a theater show where there are just so many things that you take for granted like I will go out I will work for 40 minutes they will sit in the audience and applaud and laugh at the right times it's something different you know, the hardest thing for me, if I was in your position, is to do something that you really have done enthusiastically, which is killed one of your babies. I mean, the trick is, the show is six impossible things. There are six pieces, and one of them is gone from when I saw the show, first yeah. of all. How, how do you come about making a decision to swap out a trick? It's, it's, I mean, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's tough. It's not just this show. I mean, it's in general, and you know this because you're the same way. I mean... I can work six, eight months, spend thousands of dollars on prototypes, perform a trick once and go, ah, should have thought about that, it's never gonna work. Or should have realized that this is really obvious and close to the method, scrapped, right? What's tricky and what this show has taught me um, is that when something's bad, it's easy to cut it, Mm -hmm. if it's just not resonating. But when something's pretty good, there's this desire to make it great, to really hit harder with it. And man, there's just the, the old opener is just called Ghosts. It just, it wasn't bad. It was interesting. And it, and it started in a way that no other show started. And I like so much about it. But ultimately, it was problematic. And we couldn't satisfactorily fix the things I wanted to fix. And so after 50 shows, I cut my opening piece and uh, really, really tough. And I think the staff on the show hated the decision because they had learned their parts really well and liked it, but it had to go. But then the flip side is when you take out a trick, you have to put a new one in because you can't cut the show by 20%. Right. So how do you bring in a new trick to an already existing show? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, to start with, Luke and I purposely designed uh, 10 things Mm -hmm. because I fully expected to cut four, three, four. And we did. We cut things the whole process. You know, the show opened a month before we said it would open. Mm -hmm. It just opened to family and friends and test audiences. And those were incredibly frustrating, stressful performances because, you know, you have the brief euphoria of, oh my God, it works. It works so much better than we thought. And this is killing people. But then you also have, man, after all that work and all that scripting, this just doesn't work. So, yeah, I mean, pretty late in the game, I've had to add two pieces in. And, you know, one was an existing piece, which is Trojan Deck, and it just went right into the show, sort of as is. But we, Trojan Deck is a, a two-deck matching trick. Two shuffled decks end up matching. And it's amazing how you take that trick, which I usually do in big theaters with a monitor, And I sit on the ground now, 
and everybody stands around. The room goes totally dark except a spotlight on my hands. And oh my God, like what a difference that little bit of staging and music and setting go to changing it all around. One of the things I hear or see on social media is every time you post about the show, somebody says, are you going to bring this to India? Are you going to bring this to South Africa? Yeah. Uh, is, are there plans? Can you even take a show like this somewhere Absolutely else? Absolutely not. This show is venue specific. It could never work anywhere except where it is, which is in on Canal Street in the Lower East Side of New York. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could. Yeah, they're, they're, what, exactly what makes the show special is also exactly what makes it so limiting, right? The decision to do it for 20 people and only in one area that we built out in New York is what makes it one of a kind. It's, I hope, what makes all these magicians and magic fans who travel long distances and hop on planes to see it, I hope, I hope they're pleased with what they get to see. But on the other hand, it's just an incredibly stupid business decision. I mean, 20 people per show, not many people will ever see this show. And, you know, I'm sad about that because I'm proud of it, but it is what it is. When you were working on the show, what, two, three years ago, I kind of thought that's when you were at your happiest, when you were playing around with ideas, when we were calling every day, what's, what's new, I'm working on this. Yeah. But, but now, now that you're doing the show, what, five times a week? I don't know. Uh, between six and nine. Now I kind of think this is when you're at your happiest because now you get to tweak the very small details. But do you know, do you feel happier now when you got the show polished or when you were working on it? No, I, I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. I thought I was happy. Because I'll tell you what, it's, it's hard to go back when you've, when you've tasted what it's like to have people come see you in a venue and see your show with you controlling all the elements. I mean, my whole life. I don't, you know this, I, I rarely say no to a gig or a, a, an invitation. I, I love performing. Mm -hmm. But I'm just so used to having people go, okay, you're going to perform here. Oh, I thought we said there was going to be theater seating. Now it's round tables and, oh, they're going to be eating while I'm performing. That's interesting. Okay. You said it was going to be 40 people. There's, there's 400 people out there. I, di I didn't bring material. You know, these are the kind of headaches a pro has to deal with. For once in my life, I get to control all the variables, even picking the teammates and how they say hello to our guests when they come. It's, it's so invigorating it's so exciting to control all those elements that you know i am i would say i am at my happiest and the other thing is we're at an interesting point in the creative process now where we're polishing so the material's pretty well locked in now and i'm pleased with how most people receive the show it's certainly not for everybody i, I know that but um now it's about polishing and bringing out the moments i, I call it the saturation button you know i, I don't know much about computers but when you edit photos, that's, that's my favorite little tool because the saturation button only brings out what's already there. It's just the colors, the, the shapes, the details in the photo that are already there, but it brings out the brilliance of them. And, you know, I think that in the show, the most fun part is to take the material that's there, the script that's there, the venue that's there, and just turn that knob to hopefully turn up the impact a little. You know what I admire about you is that the show is, what, an hour's walk away from your house? Yeah. About. You could just take a taxi. Yeah. Um, but every day you walk to the show. Often we chat on the phone. Mm -hmm. We talk about the show. And then every day after the show, you walk back. Yeah. But I sense there's a reason for that. 
that walk? What are you doing? What's going on in your head for that hour where you're walking home after the show? Well, yeah, I mean, the late show, usually we invite the, anybody who comes late, like magician friends and stuff. They'll usually come to the late show. And then they stay after and chat. And then I'm hungry, you know, when I eat something. I mean, my adrenaline is really high after a show. Because like I said, this is a really challenging show to give. So that walk home is my chance to unwind and really think. You know, they call it thoughtful practice when you're the difference between putting on Netflix and practicing your bottom deal and sitting in front of a mirror and doing one and saying, why did I get caught up there? Okay, why did that one look better than the one before? You know, thoughtful practice. And this is thoughtful reflection. I don't listen to music. I don't do anything. I think about the show and I think about why... Why did the second show go better than the first show? Why did that get a bigger laugh here than there? Why was this moment more amazing in the first show and not the second show? And I really do. I mean, I'll call the, the staff on the way home and go, hey, why did this go like this and not like that? Because I'm chasing that ideal show, you know? All right. So to finish up, let's do a couple of quick fire questions. Let's uh, do it. About the show. So first one, what's the most interesting moment that's happened in the show so far? Uh, interesting moment in a good way or a bad way? Oh, let's go for good. Okay. For good, I would say... Uh, I'm going to give you a good one. I mean, I'll tell you this. Every night of the show, it boils down to one moment. And we start with a piece that happens entirely in the dark. And... I don't want to spoil it, although a lot of people are spoiling it online, so you, you may or may not know what I'm talking about. But there's a moment when the lights go out and something pretty amazing for a layman happens. Mm -hmm. And it's in that moment that I know what my workload's going to be. And so I, I'm not biased enough to say I know what the audience is going to be like, although a lot of nights I feel like a really big response there leads to a big night and a really lackluster response is going to be a quiet, older more sedated crowd but I say workload because it's just how much am I going to have to work to bring them out and bring them to my level uh, and my energy level so that's the moment I can't wait to get to that moment because I want to know what what they brought to the show what's their energy are they super excited and to give you an idea people who bought tickets months and months in advance tend to be you know those shows that sell out the quickest and the furthest out tend to be the most electric the late night shows tend to be electric. The shows with younger people tend to be electric. So, you know, that's kind of the moment that sets the, the pace. You have a lot of magicians come to the show? We did initially. What's been really great, you know, the, the show ran for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very kind. You know, of course, I've got a nice following in the magic community. I'm grateful for it. So I announced a show and a lot of people flew in and saw it and I know a lot of them and, and that's awesome. But it does change the dynamic. This fall run, we've had very few magicians so far. Um, and I think that that's because a lot of the tickets we sold for this are based on the marketing that the team did and some of the TV appearances and stuff. All right, last two questions. Favorite food to eat after the show? Prince Street Pizza, done. It's a bit greasy Easy. for me, but... Yeah, well, you don't happy. know. You'll get there. Um, okay, and then the final question. Uh, tell us, tell me one thing I don't know about this show. One thing you don't know about the show. Well, 
I mean, again, like if I had more time to think about that answer, I'm sure I could come up with something because there's so much hidden imagery and stuff in the set. I mean, I forget some of the little hidden mm -hmm. things about the set that are really cool. But I'll tell you a fun one, and that is that um, Kevin and I, Kevin is the stage manager for the show, and also the host, but mostly the stage manager, we, we get little moments during the show where we're essentially just crossing paths in the dark. I'm jetting out of one room and crawling through a space to get to the next one, or he's doing something secret and handing something off to me and whatever. But we get like 20 seconds during the show and we have very interesting chats. And <laughs> sometimes they're just very funny. And sometimes they're like, what happened back there? What, did it, what, did it, what was going on in the thing? Oh, well, what happened was the so-and-so wasn't set. We had to fix it. But a lot of times we're just like, doing a little checkup. And it's really, it's actually really fun to go like, ah, oh, good crowd tonight, yeah, do you see that? Do you see this part? I think I'm gonna keep that in the show. And I don't know, it's, those are the little moments I look forward to. All right, well, Packa, this has been great. I have learned- Don't call me a Packa, or I will call you Shamu. We don't wanna know any more about this. Uh, it's been really interesting, actually. It's good to kind of get into your head, because we don't really talk about this kind of thing. We talk about the specifics of the show. Right. Really, so. Well, because I want your input always. But uh, thanks for thanks for interviewing me. I appreciate it. No worries. Keep doing the show. Keep on uh, keep on calling me Shamu. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Andy, Andy, Andy. Who is the real Andy Glass? Let's get inside that head of yours, that big... We don't normally start interviews with insults, but okay, go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Hey, everybody, it's Joshua J, and I have the great pleasure of interviewing somebody I know pretty well, my best friend in the world. That would be Andy J. Gladwin. Hi, Andy Gladwin. Hello, Vanishing Podcast listeners. It's me, Andy J. Gladwin. Yes. So um, I wanted to have a chat with you where we can focus on some of the things that I think people probably don't know about you. So let's jump in let's do it um you have become easily my favorite writer in magic and it happened over the last few years as you've done more and more books both on people i wouldn't expect and then some people like thomas bloomberg that i would do you want to talk about your process yeah i never set out to be a writer of magic books but my friend Jack Parker was in a bit of a situation where he'd always wanted to publish a magic book of his own material, and he found out that he only had a few months to live, and it just wasn't going to be suitable for him to write his own book because he had his own battles to, to go through. So I offered to write the book for him, and I essentially quit my job to get the book written in time, and Jack managed to read uh, all of the tricks that I wrote up for the book, 52 Memories. And then I realized that I had other friends like Jack, who deserve to have an audience. Like so, Thomas. Thomas Blomberg is, uh, is a magician I got to know at the same time that I got to know Jack Parker. And yeah, I realized that he had such unique style of material that it needed to be recorded in a book. And then the same for my friend Scott Robinson, another completely unique magician in a different way. And I thought I should publish his work as well. So all of this was kind of by accident more than design. But that changed recently though, actually, because I had been studying a book on the card magic of Edward G. Brown. And that was different because I read that book and I realized that it needed to see a new audience because it's such an old outright book. So yeah, and you did a really unusual thing because we are republishing that book, but it's coming with a study guide that you've written. So that's sort of 
in between annotations and sort of a, a long review, so to speak. Yeah, well, when I read The Cow Magic of Edward G. Brown, I knew that to bring this to a new audience, it needed some extra insights. The, the book is a very good book, but the author, Trevor Hall, I don't think fully understood what made Edward Brown tick and, importantly, why Edward Brown's magic was so revolutionary. And why is that? He corresponded with Brown. They only met a few times, but he corresponded just with letters. They, they wrote, I think it's like 115 letters over a two-year period. But that wasn't really enough because Brown shared his material in note form and then Trevor Hall expanded those notes into a book. But what's clear is Trevor Hall, I don't think, really understood the history of card magic. So often he will miscredit Brown for things that he assumed that Brown had created. Uh, but more importantly, he would leave out credits where Brown did some revolutionary things, such as uh, the early version of a Hammond count appeared in Brown's work, but Trevor Hall never mentioned it. Or even the, the Vernon Pushoff count is way predated by Edward Brown in this book. But Trevor Hall didn't understand what was new and what was old, and that makes it really hard to learn from the book. So the reason I did the study guide was because I thought this book needed to be annotated, but it wouldn't be right for me. You know, a guy from the UK who loves card tricks shouldn't be jumping into a historically important magic book and just start adding his own notes. Sure. So that's why you separated it out. So I did the book, the whole package blew me away. And you know, it's funny how we operate at Vanishing Ink, but we are on our own islands. You know, we live in different countries, you and I, and we're busy with different tasks. So that was one that you sort of managed, and I didn't get to read it until late in the game, and I was totally blown away. So. And that was my design as well, because you are the guy who gives me the most honest feedback in the world. So I didn't want you to see this halfway through. I wanted to wait and get your honest opinion, and uh, it really helped me shape the book. Yeah, so segueing from books to performing you've had a pretty amazing year in terms of uh, some tv appearances you had a foolish appearance with your balloon act and then you had uh, masters of illusion appearances are you thinking about your magic in different ways now that you're doing some tv yeah i think it's pretty evident actually if you saw me perform 10 years ago you would have almost certainly seen some kind of card trick with dealing or some kind of magician uh interesting ideas right but now that's changed a lot because now I have real audiences to perform for. Now that I'm a professional magician, you know, I have paying gigs to do. So now to me, tricks are much more about the premise. So if you see all of my pieces that I've done on TV, every single one of them starts with an interesting premise that I then develop. And they're all visual and they all have kind of hooks that you can remember me by and the trick by. And this premise-based thinking, does this spill over into live stuff as well? Yeah, actually... I have a rule that I would never kind of do tricks on TV on these kind of shows that I've been doing uh, without performing them hundreds of times in my real performances. So nothing I've ever performed on TV was created for TV. So let me segue now. We've talked about books and TV. I want to go to live performing. And I, I know you're a little uncomfortable with what I'm about to bring up because you don't want to spoil it. And I understand that. But um, I think you've created in the last year the best thing you've ever come up with which is your trick entitled Chip Robinson Ode to Cheating. <laughs> is that the name? Is that what we call it? I now? don't know, because you haven't published it, but that's what I think you ought, That's what I think you probably would call it, because okay. you're corny like that. Thanks. Um, but it's this, uh, it's, it's a three, what I call a three-dimensional trick. It's got everything, right? It's got the, the right premise. It's got an amazing and intriguing presentation and an ending nobody sees coming. And it's really kind of a new plot. Um, we won't talk about what makes the trick tick individually, but let's unpack it a little. 
Tell me about your process. So I'm a big fan of Carl Fulvis, and I have a large collection of his work. But not everything. Except for one book. What is it? Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. Because uh, I was saying we could put it out there to the millions of people who will be listening to yeah, this. Yeah, that's and... true. I'll have to check my notes. Maybe we can leave this in the show notes. Perhaps somebody has it. It's one of the really, really rare ones. But I have about three or 400 Carl Fulvis publications, and I really read them and study them. Uh, I don't perform any of his tricks, but I was thinking one night, what would I do if I met Carl? What trick would I show him? Because it's pretty evident in his work that he loves very strange, wacky plots. Uh, and... I started to think, what would that be? So here's the plot I came up with. I would take two coins and I would put them in my eye sockets like mentalists do, and I would tape the coins to my eyes. I would then have two other coins borrowed and signed, and I would make them vanish, and then I would peel the tape off my eyes and the signed coins would be in my eyes. I came up with a method for it. I played around with it. Turned out it was a pretty bad trick, pretty bad method. But then eventually, over a course of several years, I started to think, how could I make this trick work? And it just shows that often the starting point is nowhere near the end point. Sure. So Chip Robinson has gone through hundreds and hundreds of incremental changes until it's now come into a, a trick that is so different that it's unimaginable where it would have started. Yeah, well, I hope viewers, listeners, I should say, get a chance to see it uh, when you perform at their local um, Elks Lodge or Banquet. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. Good. So um, now let's talk about how you are, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but you're segueing into children's magic in a huge way and taking over the daycare mark. Talk about that. Sure. Um, mainly, the reason I do daycare shows is because it's a complete lie. What are you talking about? I'm sorry. I just wanted to see if you'd go with it or not. I almost did. Um, I tried. Let's, we got to wrap it up um, in just a couple of minutes here, but let's talk about what excites you about what we've got coming up with the company i certainly know what i would say but it'd be interesting to hear what you think because at any one time we have 80 projects mm -hmm. on the horizon we have three events that we are planning for actively and um you know some really big new partnerships yeah the most exciting thing for me is going to be firing my business partner it's going to be so much fun. ah that sounds great yeah we'll see you in court my friend oh yeah um yeah actually the next year for us is really interesting because we're trying new things. You know, we're 10 years old and we've published over 100 uh, The books. company is 10 years old. I am very much of age. I just want to be clear about that. Uh, I guess they don't know you well enough if they believe that. Um, yeah, the company's 10 years old, so it's, it's weird talking to you about this because you know all about it. But, you know, we're trying new things. So the conventions, we're experimenting with different formats. Uh, but to me, the most exciting thing is the retreat which is a, a thing we're doing in Costa Rica. We are having some of our favorite magicians come, and we're, it's a small convention. It's going to be 30 people going to come and attend. And I can't wait, because we're going to be able to dig deep into the repertoires of two of my favorite magicians, Paul V. Hill and Danny Dortiz. And this is going to be unlike any other magic teaching experience. And if I'm honest, I maybe you agree with this it's almost a selfish event because yeah. we've booked this so we can this is the thing that excites me too i mean yeah. it, it's just a chance to pick some of our favorite magicians danny dortiz and paul v hill and sit down with them and explore what makes their repertoire tick why they make the choices they do to learn some of our favorite things from them and do just be in an amazing and beautiful place 
and with serious like-minded magicians working on the craft of magic. It's going to be great. The thing I've always said about the Session of Magi Fest is that we essentially organize events that we want to go to, and the retreats is a representation of the way I like to learn magic now, because I like to dig really deep into repertoires of magicians that I really admire, so I cannot wait for that. Terrific. Well, it's been great catching up. I hope to do this again in the future. Um, you know what? Hook me been... up anytime. I'm on MySpace, Facebook, the whole lot. So let's okay, chat. Great. I'd love uh, to hear from you. Yeah, it would be nice to, uh, to hear from you. I, I've really enjoyed this chat. Okay, well, you'll be hearing from my lawyers.